Well, please do open up your Bibles at that passage. Um, this is a passage that is not preached on very much, and I think the reason is because there's some very strange things in it. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to help us to get our heads around those and to speak to us this morning through his word. Let's pray together. Living God, we thank you for the Bible, and we thank you that this is your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through it. And we would pray this morning that as we look at this part of the Bible this morning, that we would hear what you have to say to us, and that we would truly understand, and that in understanding, we would believe what you say, and in believing that you would help us to live in light of it. But Lord, we long to hear your voice, so speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some cities in the world and they are famous for different things. So I wonder, can you get one or two of these? New York is the city that never... Good, oh few, you know, it's the city that never sleeps. Always busy in New York, 24-hour bakeries, 24-hour cafes. It's a busy, busy place. What about Paris? Paris is the city of love, yeah. It's the place you go for romance. You know, you go and you, you have a nice romantic meal looking at the Eiffel Tower. It's delightful and beautiful and romantic. Belfast is the city of eye trouble. I think that's a good one. I couldn't come up with Belfast. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what we'd say about Belfast. But some cities, they, they have a, a notoriety about them. There is a reason why they're famous. And in the book of Acts, Paul is traveling to lots of different cities and he's going there to tell people about Jesus. And in the past couple of weeks, we've seen him visit various cities that are famous for various things. So Corinth, for example, he went there. And Corinth, it was the city of pleasure. If you went to Corinth, you went there for pleasure. You went there for drinking and for parties and for other things, which I'm not even going to mention in church. But if you think of Las Vegas, that's kind of what Corinth was like. And then last week, we saw that he was in Athens, and Athens, that was the intellectual city. That was the city of the philosophers. That was the city of ideas. That was the city of debate. That was the city of intellect. And he went there last week, didn't he? And he, he debated. And he had these wonderful, rich conversations with all of the really bright, clever people. Well, this week, we find Paul in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was known as the city of magic. Ephesus was known to be a city of magic. Now, when we think of magic, we think of tricks, don't we? You know, we think of the children's entertainer, and he puts his hand into a hat, and he pulls out a rabbit. Ta-da! You know, magic in the 21st century, it's all about tricks. You know, there's nothing sinister to it. It's just illusions. I have a friend who's a magician, and he has, well, I say a friend, I, someone I know, I won't say friend in case he listens to this, I'm not really his friend, but I know him, he's, he's an acquaintance, he's someone I could say hello to, and he'd know who I was and I would know who he is, and he's on TikTok, and he's a magician, and he has 15 million followers, and what I love about Joel is that he, he kind of dispels any illusions, he shows you how to do some of the tricks. Magic today, it's just illusions, it's just tricks, but magic in the Bible, magic in Ephesus, magic 2,000 years ago, was something much more sinister. It was more akin to the occult. Magic in the ancient world, it was trying to tap into the spiritual realm, trying to tap into the spirits in the unseen world, 
trying to manipulate them to do things for you or to do things against your enemies. And Ephesus was a place that was known to be a city where this magic was prevalent. In the ancient world, magic had various components to it. There would be these rituals which would involve animal sacrifice. In some places, they might even involve child sacrifice. There was the casting of spells, the saying of words, trying to invoke the names of the spirits or the gods, trying to get to do something. There was even the reciting of various names of gods or spirits to try to get them to, to work on your behalf. And people would even just babble, putting random sounds together in the hope they might just manage to say the name of a spirit or a god. And then there would be the, the magic professionals who made a fortune from going around casting spells or driving out demons. Ephesus was a, a place that was steeped in this type of dark magic. Now we sit here in Belfast in 2022 and we think to ourselves, Marty, that sounds like something from Harry Potter. That sounds crazy. You see, we live in, in a part of the world where we kind of don't really think about these things. We don't really think about magic or spirits or, or dark things like that. But you know what, folks? That's only because we're in this part of the world. If you went to the place, the island of Haiti, have you heard of Haiti? Yeah, you've heard of it. If you went to the island of Haiti, they actually have a joke on the island of Haiti. And they say the people of Haiti, they are 70% Catholic, they're 30% Protestant, and they are 100% voodoo. If you go to the island of Haiti, you will land on an island that really is steeped in the type of magic and the type of stuff that was happening in Ephesus. If you go onto National Geographic later on today online and you look up Haiti and you look up voodoo, you will see that it's just like Ephesus. They have these rituals where they sacrifice animals. They call on the spirits to do things for good, or for hatred and evil. They would say that they call on the spirits to heal people and the, the spirits would come and they'd tell them what medicine to give. There's even this idea that spirits will come and possess you. They practice divination trying to tell people what the spirits want to say. In Northern Ireland, this whole idea of a spiritual world is a bit weird. But if you were to go to Haiti, it would be a totally different story. I spent some time in Uganda a number of years ago. And again, when I went there, I was just shocked. Because people would talk about things that, that would just be so foreign to, to my mind. I went up to a place called Gulu up in the north of Uganda. There, there was a, a massive movement called the Lord's Resistance Army where they captured children and forced them to be soldiers. And the stories those children told about things they saw and spiritual things which, which were just frightening almost. Here in Northern Ireland, this idea of a, a culture, kind of a magic, dark culture, it's weird. But go to Haiti, go to Africa, go to South America, and you'll get an idea of what this place was like. I actually read of a, an American minister. He was at the States and he was at Bible college and 
he, he took a semester to go to Africa. And he went to this African Bible college and he was talking to the pastors there and he told them that, that in America, 90% of people don't believe in the devil. And the pastors laughed. They found this hilarious because in their everyday work, they were experiencing forces of evil, spiritual forces in their everyday work. They laughed at the idea. They couldn't even understand it. Well, this is the type of place that Paul goes to in Acts chapter 19. It's a dark place. It's a little bit frightening, very alien to what Paul would have known, very alien to what we would have known. And he goes there, and the first thing he does is he preaches. He preaches in this place. And again, you see that in verses 8 through to 10. First of all, as usual, he goes to the synagogue. So he goes to the Jews, the Jewish people. There would have been a small group of them. And he goes to them and he starts to open up the Old Testament. And he starts to talk about Jesus and how Jesus is the powerful king. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the one who's come to rule and to reign. But the Jews, they don't want to know. They don't believe him. And so what happens is he leaves. You see that in verse 9. So Paul left them. And then he took the disciples, those who come to believe in Christ, and he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And that's a place probably in the city, uh, and he hired this out during siesta hours. So in the ancient world, people would work in the morning, then they'd take a big bit of time off in the afternoon to have a rest, have a cup of coffee, get some lunch, see their friends, and then they'd work in the evening again. So, so Paul, he hires the lecture hall for the siesta. And he starts to tell people about Jesus as they come into this place. And if you have a look at verse 10, this went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul preaches in this place. He speaks words about Jesus. He knows that the gospel is powerful even in a place like this. And so he preaches about Christ. Now in Athens, the place where they're all smart, the smarty pants town, okay? In Athens, they listened, they debated, they were interested. But in Ephesus, they're more interested in power, aren't they? In Ephesus, they're not really interested in these ideas. They want to know that in the power of Jesus, Paul can explain things all he wants, but, but they want to know that Jesus really is king. That he really has the power that Paul is talking about. If Paul's been talking about Jesus came and he healed people, they want to know that Jesus can really heal. If Paul was talking about Jesus had power over evil, well, they want to know that it's really true. They were seeing magic things happen in their city. And they weren't going to believe Paul just by words alone. And so God does something that he doesn't always do. God showed his power in very strange and incredible ways. If you have a look at verse 11, you'll see this. And this just sounds plain strange, doesn't it? God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So the place of power and God does extraordinary miracles through power so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. 
So imagine Paul, I don't know if you know this, but in the morning he made tents. Paul was a tent maker in working hours. So the morning, there he is, he's making tents. He's sweating the bit out. It's a hot day like this. He's sweating the bit out. He gets a handkerchief and he, he wipes his forehead. He gets all the sweat. You just smell it. It stinks, you know, that B.O. smell. And he throws it in the ground and he, he carries on with his work. And these people who are interested in magic, and they've heard Paul talking about Jesus and, and how Jesus can heal and how Jesus can do all these things, it's like they sneak up and they, they take it away. It's like this little kind of magic cloth and they bring it to someone, but amazingly, people are healed. The handkerchief touches them and they're healed. God does this extraordinary thing. God does this incredible thing. And he does it to show that Jesus really has the power that Paul has been saying he does. It's strange, it's weird. (laughs) But in a place where this type of magic happened, it makes perfect and logical and reasonable sense. And not only, you'll notice, are people healed, but if you have a look at verse 11, verse 12, look at the end of it. Their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. We'll get on to that in a minute. But what I want you to see here is that in this place of magic, God did amazing miracles through Paul. God showed his power. God displayed that Jesus really was the king, that Jesus really did have power over illness and over evil and over all the things that the people were trying to invoke the spirits to do. Let me just take a moment, though, to to just take a little sidestep and have a chat about miracles. One of the things that happens when we read the Bible is that we see that there are miracles the whole way through. God does things in the Bible which you and I have never seen today. God does things in the Bible and and we read them and we're almost struggling to believe them. They're so out of the ordinary. They're so strange. They're so amazing. They're so radical. And we can sit as Christians today thinking, well, why do we not see these type of things today? You know, why are we not seeing the same things that they saw in the Bible. Well, there's one word in our text that I think I want us to focus on in answer to this question, and it's in verse 11. Look what it said. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's that word, extraordinary. Miracles are extraordinary. That means they are rare. That means they are not the norm. That means that they only happen in very rare circumstances. Miracles are not everyday kind of occurrences. And do you know what? Even in the Bible, they're not. The Bible spans about 2,500 years of history. That's a long time, right? That's a long time. And do you know how many miracles are recorded in the Bible? You want to guess? You know, let's go for one a year, 2,500. You know, that'd be good, wouldn't it? One a year for 2,500 years. Not even close. Just around 180. Only around 180 are recorded in the Bible. And around 40 of those are directly associated with Jesus. And around another 40 of those are directly associated with the book of Acts. 
which leaves only around 100 miracles for the whole of the Old Testament. Miracles are rare. Miracles are not the norm. So today as we sit here and we're sort of thinking, you know, why are there not so many miracles today? It's because they're rare. And also we need to understand the purpose of a miracle. The purpose of a miracle, there was some very key purposes in miracles, but one of the main purposes was to authenticate the messenger. There's Paul, okay? He's gone into this city, this place called Ephesus. They're all about magic. They're all about power. And Paul starts talking about Jesus. And he says that Jesus has power over evil and power over sickness. Now, they're nice words. But the people in Ephesus are not going to believe him, are they? Just by his words. So God does a miracle to authenticate his words. To show that what he's saying about Jesus is true. Miracles are there to to point to the truth of the messenger. And miracles happen whenever God needs them to happen to accomplish his purpose and his plan. So this morning as we sit here and we read the book of Acts and there's all these miracles and we're thinking, where are they today? Well, they could happen. I believe miracles still do happen, but they are rare. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't see them or baffled or wondering. Anyway, let's come on to the next thing that happens. So Paul's there. He's been preaching about Jesus. God has started to authenticate that he's the true messenger of Jesus and that Jesus really has these powers and he does it through these miraculous things. And then we find out about these, this dad and seven sons. This man called Sceva and his seven sons. And we read about them in verse 13. Have a look with me there. It says there that some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Sceva's sons, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this in the news at any stage, but sometimes people use a celebrity's name without their permission. Have you ever seen that happen? Uh, I remember a clothing company, they printed Rihanna's picture and Rihanna's name on a t-shirt without asking her permission, And she sued them. To use someone's name without their permission is a big problem. Because it can bring their reputation down. Or it can say something about them that isn't true. And here in Ephesus, there were people who made a living from casting demons out of people. We'll talk about that in a minute. Another crazy thing from Ephesus. So there were people and they'd go around and if if you had a demon attacking you or someone in your family, you'd go to that family and you'd assess the situation. You'd say, that'll be about 500 quid, please. And then they'd pay the 500 pounds and then the person would go in and they'd do whatever it was they did to cast the demon out of the person. And here the seven sons of Sceva, well, they have a new name by which they're going to cast the demons out. They have the name of Jesus. They're not Christians. They haven't trusted Jesus as their savior. Jesus is not the Lord of their life, but they're going to use his name to make money out of it. They're going to invoke his name 
as they go in to drive demons out of people. They're going to misuse and abuse the name of Christ. So they go in and they try to do this. But it doesn't go too well for them. Because have a look at verse 15. One day, so they've gone in to speak in the name of Jesus and it says, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and I know taught Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So they go into the house and they pronounce the name of Jesus. (laughs) And the spirit who's in this man, and I don't quite understand how this works. He says, listen lads, Jesus I know. Paul, I know. But you lads are nobody. And then he beats them. And now... (laughs) Let's face it, we've all seen a few fights in our time, haven't we? As we said, Belfast, the city of trouble, you know? We've seen a few fights here in Belfast. But they all ran out, seven of them bleeding and naked. They got a hammer in. And they ran out bleeding and naked. God was not going to allow these people to misuse or abuse the name of Jesus. God was making it clear That Jesus was not a name to be manipulated. It wasn't a name to be added on to something, to try to do something. Do you remember Ephesus? They tried to manipulate the spirits to do things for them. Well, Jesus was not going to be manipulated. Jesus was king. Jesus was in authority. Jesus would not be manipulated by these seven sons of Sceva. Jesus was not one who could be controlled. Jesus was the one in control. And I think that's really important for us to remember. I think it's important for us to remember this morning that we cannot manipulate Jesus. That Jesus is not our servant. That Jesus is not our butler. But that Jesus is the king. And Jesus is the one who we're to bow before. And Jesus is the one who we're to obey. And Jesus is the one we're to follow. He does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. Let's take a moment now to to chat a little bit about evil spirits. That's not one you hear too much about in Presbyterian churches, is it? We don't talk too much about demons, or we don't talk too much about evil spirits. Uh, and even when you say the things, it kind of gives us the heebie-jeebies a little bit, doesn't it? It's like, oh. Or else it just makes us sound weird, you know? That's the problem whenever you talk about these things in Northern Ireland. You sound like a little bit of a nutter, you know? But if you went to Haiti or you went to these other places, you wouldn't, you'd sound normal. C.S. Lewis makes a very interesting observation when it comes to talking about evil spirits. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe 
and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, I think as Presbyterians, we fall into the first category. I think we are tempted to disbelieve they exist. We're tempted to disbelieve that there's no enemy, that there is no devil, that there is no evil spirits, aren't we? We're rational, we're sophisticated. Believing in devils and spiritual beings and, and evil forces, that does all sound so strange to us. But yet it's what the Bible teaches. And there's no getting away from it. The Bible teaches that there is an enemy called Satan and that there are fallen angels who are demons and that they are here in this world and that they are active, acting against God and against his people. And, and you might struggle to believe that, but I think it's really important that you're aware of it. Because these spiritual forces, they, they have an agenda. And if you're a Christian here this morning, they, they have an agenda for you. And they have an agenda for me. You see, when we read the Bible, we see that these uh, demons, they delight to cause pain and trouble. They cause pain and trouble in the lives of believers in order to try to inflict them spiritual harm. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there are times for me, and, and I'll be having a perfectly normal, ordinary day, and sometimes very, very dark thoughts come to my mind. Very dark thoughts. Do you ever have that? I wonder where they come from. I think sometimes it's the enemy. Swing dark thoughts in our minds, trying to cause us spiritual harm. We see as well in Scripture that sometimes these demons, they try to get us to, to believe false things about God. They try to get us to twist or reject the truth. In the Old Testament, the, the gods who the Canaanites worship, they're connected with demons. And it's this idea that the, the demons try to deceive us. They try to deceive us from believing the truth. The Bible says that Satan is a liar, that lying is his native tongue, and that he works through false teachers and, and other things to try to deceive the people of God in, in the hope that they will they will change their thinking about God or stop trusting God or stop believing in God. What else do these demons do? Well, they encourage us to sin. They want God's people to fail. In fact, they want them to feel so badly that they face a failure that they won't go back to the Father and receive forgiveness. They want to get us out of the game. They want to get us out of the race. They want to get us stopping to serve God. They want to disable us in our belief and in our faith. And so they entice us and they tempt us. I'm sure we've had that sometimes too, haven't we? Just temptations that come out of nowhere that you don't even know where they've come from. Some temptations, we know they come within. You know, we, we kind of have desires for things. But then there are temptations that, that seem to come from without, from outside us. And they tempt us to sin. And these demons, they also try to prevent salvation. 
Bible says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's like he's put a veil over to, to stop them seeing the gospel. Even in the book of Acts, we see sometimes that, that Paul was prevented from going places. Sometimes by the Spirit, but sometimes by evil spirits. They want to stop the gospel going out. They want to stop people coming to faith in Christ. Friends, I'm not trying to frighten you because we don't need to be frightened of them. Christ has defeated them. Christ has beaten them. What the, what the demons are doing, it's like a scorched earth policy. Jesus beat them at the cross. When he died and rose again, we're told that the powers of darkness were disarmed. He conquered evil at the cross and through his resurrection. The, the enemies of God, the demons and Satan, they know that they're going to be defeated. They know that their days are done. But until Christ returns and finally defeats them, then they, they're still here. And it's like a scorched earth policy. Do you know what that is? It's in war. And an enemy have invaded a country. And they've been defeated and, and they're fleeing. They're going back to their own country. But on the way, they burn everything they can. They're defeated, but they're trying to cause harm. And that's what Satan and the demons are doing. Trying to cause harm to God's people. Because they know that they've been defeated. In the book of Ephesians, which was written to the people of Ephesus, it's later on in the Bible. I don't think it's a surprise that Paul finishes the letter by saying this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after that, you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We know that passage, don't we? And it's written to the Ephesians who live in this city of magic. As we face these evil forces, we don't need to tremble in our boots. We just need to stand firm. We don't need to be frightened, but we do need to be aware. And how do we stand against these evil forces? Well, we wear the breastplate of righteousness. We, we live in a right way with God. We try to live in a righteous way. And when we fail, we trust that we're righteous in God's sight by the precious blood of Christ. When Satan tempts us to despair, and tells us of the guilt within, we look to him and see him there who made an end to all our sin. When he tells us of our sin, we look to Christ. We remember that we're righteous in his sight because of what he's done. We lift up the shield of faith. Again, when the, the arrows come, telling us that we're not good enough, telling us that we're we're terrible Christians telling us that we should give up. When those come from the enemy, we stand with the shield of faith. Our faith in Christ, which says, yes, I am a terrible Christian. <laughs> and what of it? 
I belong to Christ. I'm going nowhere. I'm precious to him. We wear the helmet of salvation. Again, we remember that we're saved by Christ. When those thoughts come, they can just bounce away off because we're saved by Jesus. And then we take out our sword, the word of God, what the Bible says is true. And when those evil ones come and they try to sow deceit in our minds, we we stand on the scriptures and we believe what the Bible says about all things. What happened in Ephesus is really powerful, isn't it? It's really powerful. People healed by a handkerchief. God doing these amazing miracles. People being, Jesus' name being honored and lifted high as they realized that he couldn't be manipulated, but that he was the king. But I think the most powerful thing that happens in the whole of Ephesus is people's response. Look at how they respond to Jesus. Take a look with me at the text there. Um, You'll see it in verse 18. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them in public. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I think this is the most powerful thing that happens in Ephesus. When people realize that Jesus is king, that he is the ruler, that he is all-powerful, that he has authority over death and evil and sickness and all of the things that Paul had been saying, when people realize that he's the king, they bring their lives before him and they turn away from the things that they were living for. Some people confess their hidden evil practices. I have been doing these things And I just want you to know that I've been doing them and that I'm turning from them. And then the magicians, they they bring their magic books. And these are worth a fortune. 50,000 drachmas is probably over a million pounds. This is a lot of gear. We've realized that all of our magic is worthless compared to Jesus. He is the powerful one. He's the authoritative one. He is the king. And so we are leaving this stuff behind to follow and live and trust in him. I wonder this morning, are there some things you need to leave behind? You're here and you're a believer. You're a Christian. Jesus is the Lord of your life. You're trying to live with him as your leader. You're you're trusting him as your savior. But maybe you're clinging to things that will make it easy for you to go back to your old life. Maybe you're clinging on to things that will make it easy when the devil comes to tempt you to to go back into sin that you used to do and that you turn from. Are there habits, are there things that you need to burn, metaphorically speaking, this morning? Are there things you need to get rid of? Are there bridges you need to burn? Are there things you need to let go of? Things that the enemy uses to lure you back 
to your old way of life? Well, if they are, I want to encourage you to do that. Burn those books. <laughs> Not literally, you know, unless you've got some kind of sorcery books and things like that. But, you know, but whatever your books are, whatever those things are that are tying you to your old life, whatever those things are in your life that you're tempted to go back to, like a dog returning to its vomit, whatever those things are, clear them out. The hymn says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. That could have been the hymn of these people in Ephesus. And my prayer is that it will be your hymn this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have decided to follow you. Many of us here have. And yet, Lord, we have not made you the Lord and King of every area of our life. There are things we cling to from our old way that tempt us back. There are things we cling to from our old way that damage us. There are things we cling to from our old way that cause us problems and trouble. Lord, I pray whatever those things are, that you would help us to burn them to rid ourselves of them and also of the sin that so easily entangles. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us and that we're forgiven. Thank you that we belong to the family of God and that no one can take us away. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from your hand and we thank you for that. But Lord, when the enemy comes, help us to stand firm, to trust in Christ, to know your protection and to live your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.